Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Saturday, May 21st, and it will begin airing on Sunday, May 22nd. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Jasmine Smith and Emily Scott. How's it going, Jasmine? Um, You know, I'm, I'm hanging in there, like, you know, I say every week. So how are you? Same here, hanging in here, trying to keep going, you know. Um, and hopefully Emily as well. She is doing a lot right now with her family and got a lot of things going on, but definitely happy to have her contribution to the show today. All right. So on the docket for today's show, for our local news segment, Mayor Adams is endorsing a controversial police tool. For our national news segment, we will be discussing the shooting that happened last week in Buffalo. For world news today, we are going to be talking about China's zero COVID policy, as well as the newly confirmed cases of COVID in North Korea. So we're going to go ahead and hop into today's episode with our local news segment. Emily, take it away. Uh, This comes from a May 18th New York Times article by Michael Rothfeld, William K. Rashbaum, and Dana Rubenstein. It's titled, As Adams Praised a New Police Tool, a Close Ally Had a Stake in the Maker. Mayor Eric Adams and his chief of staff, Frank Carone, said Mr. Adams' endorsement of Bolarap was entirely coincidental. The article explains, quote, For years as an elected official and candidate for New York City mayor, Eric Adams promoted an unconventional police tool called Bolarap, designed to fire a Kevlar tether that ensnares people who might fight or try to flee from the authorities, the handheld device has been tested and and rejected by the New York City Police Department, the New York Police Department. Yet in 2018, Mr. Adams, as Brooklyn Borough President, invited reporters reporters to Borough Hall for a bowler wrap demonstration, firing it and being fired at himself before exclaiming, this is a damned good product, man. He praised Bolarap again in 2019, bringing it up during a televised television interview and calling it an excellent tool for diffusing violent situations. And he mentioned it once more during his successful bid for mayor, saying at a forum in 2020 that he had tried to get the police department to use it. What was not widely known as Mr. Adams lauded the device was that his friend, political benefactor, and current chief of staff, Frank Carone, had a significant financial stake in the company that makes it. Indeed, Mr. Carone more than doubled his investment within two weeks of Mr. Adams's endorsement at Borough Hall. Interviews and records reviewed by the New York Times show that Mr. Carone, the former top lawyer for the Brooklyn Democratic Party, invested about $980,000 in rap technologies, the bowler wrap maker, over a three-year period, and that he earned more than $460,000 in profit while Mr. Adams was publicizing the company's chief product. Mr. Carone and Mr. Adams both said Mr. Adams did not know about Mr. Carone's investment until the Times brought it to the mayor's attention last month. They said Mr. Adams' promotion of Bolarap was entirely coincidental. As chief of staff, Mr. Carone occupies one of the most powerful positions in city government, serving as the mayor's principal gatekeeper. Besides acting as Brooklyn Democratic Party counsel, Mr. Carone was a partner at the law firm Abrams Fensterman, uh, before resigning last year to join the Adams administration. He said he learned about Bolarap in 2017 from Joel Kestenbaum, one of his firm's important clients, a real estate developer whose family had a multi-million dollar stake in RAP technologies. 
Mr. Carone first brought into the company, for, I'm sorry, Mr. Carone first bought into the company in December 2017. And in the years that followed, he and Mr. Adams were in regular contact, laying the groundwork for Mr. Adams's mayoral run. They also socialized together, but Mr. Carone said their conversations never involved private business matters. Even so, Mr. Adams held the October 2018 news conference to praise Bolarap just as Rap Technologies was seeking media coverage and wooing investors, interviews, and records show. The company quickly um, the company moved quickly to capitalize on the publicity, posting about Mr. Adams' endorsement on his website and social media accounts and working it into investor presentations. Mr. Carone said he had no advanced knowledge of Mr. Adams' plan for the demonstrations. It surprised me when I saw him. Uh, when I read the press release, quite frankly, Mr. Crone said in the interview, adding, you're right to ask these questions. It is very coincidental. I get all that. But my life has been that way. <laughs> uh, quote, regardless of whether Mr. Adams, is, Mr. Adams knew of Mr. Crone's investment, he may have acted improperly when he public, publicly endorsed Bolarap, eth- eth- <clears throat> ethics expert said. It's outside the role of a public servant to use public resources, which includes his space and his title, to promote a private product, said Richard Briffalt, Richard Briffalt, uh, a former chairman of the city's Conflicts of Interest Board, which enforces municipal ethics laws. Under city rules, officials can only promote commercial products that have a demonstrable nexus to their agencies, such as when a police commissioner contributed to a book that was sold to raise money for a police museum. Some city officials have requested opinions from the ethics board before taking actions that could benefit private organizations. Mr. Adams never sought such an opinion. His chief counsel at City Hall, Brendan R. McGuire, said he did not need to do so because his behavior was appropriate. Mr. McGuire, a former police corruption prosecutor, said recommending the device was in the interest of Mr. Adams' constituents at the time. The company that pitched Bolarap as a... I'm sorry, quote... The company that pitched Bolarap as a revolutionary policing device was founded by people with no experience in law enforcement. In 2018, Rap Technologies, quote, was embarking on its first marketing blitz, staging Bolarap demonstrations for police and the media in Utah, Missouri, and elsewhere. Local newspapers covered a demonstration for the Yonkers NY Police Department on October 2, 2018. About a week later, company representatives held a private Bolarap showing for New York police officials at a department firing range in the Bronx. The officials rejected the device, concluding, among other things, that the loud crack it made when being fired, its flying tether at the time was repelled by a blank 9mm pistol round, could be mistaken for gunfire and cause other officers, officers to start shooting, people familiar with the meeting said. Mr. Adams, the Brooklyn Borough president at the time, held his Bolarap demonstration the next day. Inside Borough Hall, as, in, as reporters looked on, a Rap Technologies executive fired the device at Mr. Adams and the tether looped around his legs. Then he took a turn firing it himself. Spider-Man has nothing on Bola, Mr. Adams said, adding that police officers should use Bolarap during violent encounters with people who are mentally ill. I cannot imagine anyone in policing that after seeing this device would not start at the point of doing a pilot project. He said, that is unimaginable to me. Mr. Adams posted a 30-minute video of his demonstration online that day and wrote four messages about the device on Twitter in about an hour. Mr. Young, the mayor's spokesman, said Mr. Adams had asked an aide to set up the news conference after seeing media coverage of Bullrap about a week earlier. Mr. Adams' demonstration occurred as Rap Technologies was preparing a private stock offering 
hoping to raise money and move the company from the penny stock market to the NASDAQ exchange, which lists larger, more established companies. By then, Mr. Caron's initial $46,000 investment in RAP Technologies had nearly tripled in value to more than $135,000. About two weeks after Mr. Adams's uh, demonstration, Mr. Caron, as part of the stock offering, bought 55,000 more shares for $165,000 record show. He also obtained rights to buy another 55,000 shares at $5 a piece within the next two years. Uh, quote, Mr. Adams's, uh, oh, sorry. Yes, quote, Mr. Adams's relationship with Bolarap and its stakeholders intensified in the first half of 2019. With the mayoral race a year closer, Mr. Adams was amping up his fundraising efforts, and Mr. Cohen, the RAP co-founder, gave him another $2,500 in January. Then, in a seven-day period starting in late March, others connected to the company made donations totaling more than $20,000. Quote, Mr. Cohen did not respond to interview requests uh, or questions, but he issued a statement through a company spokesman saying, I have supported Eric Adams because I believe he is the right person uh, to lead New York and develop solutions for its challenges. And uh, yes, sorry. Uh, quote, for his part, Mr. Adams continued to boost Bolarap in public statements, and Mr. Carone made more investments for the com- in the company. On April 8th, 2018, 2019, 12 days after meeting the investors at Mr. Cohen's apartment, Mr. Adams mentioned Bolarap while appearing on an Ask the Borough President segment on the cable channel News 12. Rap Technologies posted the clip on YouTube the next day. Uh, Adams, quote, remained enamored of Bolarap into the thick of the mayoral campaign, urging at a candidate forum on December 10th, 2020, that the police department use the device. Quote, Mr. Carone made his last trades at Rap Technologies in January 2021, turning a $10,000 profit in three days. He said he no longer owned stock in the company. And Mr. Adams won the Democratic primary last July, virtually locking up the mayor's office. About two months later, the police department agreed to a request to test a new version of Bolarap, which the company says is quieter and more effective. The test happened after a department official met Mr. Cohen through a police mentoring program, two officials said. Once again, the department tested the device, the official said, and rejected it. Mr. Young, the city hall spokesman, said that Mr. Adams had nothing to do with arranging the demonstration. Um, so, yeah, I mean, wiggy things like this in political situations is nothing new. Um and I think it's important to keep an eye on when these things happen because people, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in here that, you know, just seems a bit too coincidental to me. Um, so keep an eye on it and the people in power. This is disturbing to say the least. I do feel that um, since Adams has been in office, there's been some interesting things going on. But I did not doubt for one second that this is the type of stuff we would see um, more so in the news and just him supporting these other ways to terrorize people by the police. I've been listening to the story. I did watch a couple of videos to see how this device works. And there's a lot of issues with it. I mean, the fact that it's supposed to, I really hate the way that he said to use it for mentally ill um, people who are not compliant. That just seems very like, it seems very much uh, targeted. And I also really don't like the fact that this is, you know, that he is 
so excited about the use of this. Like it's, you know, something great. I do think that, you know, the way they're trying to paint it as if it's not a weapon, this is just a way for police to capture people who are not being compliant. I think that's some bullshit. It's just another way for them to capture people and uh, destabilize them in situations where they probably don't need to be done that way. And with the sound and just the use of it, it can be totally out of hand. Um, and, and what happens if it if it reaches the wrong person or, you know, something along those lines? I don't think this is something that we need to see more of at all. It actually is quite scary that he's just putting it out there like that, that this is going to be the newest technology that they use to harass us. Yeah, I didn't watch any videos, but in the New York Times article, I just I saw a picture of him that looked pretty disturbed. It just looked so bizarre. Like he had on these yellow glasses and it like it was he let someone do it to him. So you just see like this yellow string crooked around his legs and he's supposed to be like demonstrating like how this is brilliant. It's basically from what I understand, it's like you're trying to lasso somebody. It's like, you know, wasn't the stun gun and tasers like that was supposed to be the, well, at least you're not being shot. Like, so you should be grateful for the, and now is this thing is supposed to be the next step in the evolution. Like it's still essentially like a weapon and a restraint that's going to be abused if it's adopted. Because at this point, it seems like, you know, most of this is in the past and it hasn't actually been incorporated, but he's still apparently like until recently relatively recently talking it up yeah i mean i know that this is being used in other agencies um so it's not you know brand new it's also been used in other countries and supposedly has a lower risk of harming uh police officers as well as people who are who are being captured and i keep saying capture because i mean it just like that by police because it's supposedly stopping them from running, which is supposed to reduce the likelihood that the police will use more deadlier weapons. But to me, it sounds like just another weapon. And it looks like a lasso. Yeah. It just sounds like another weapon. Like while it may not physically harm someone, if you're being restrained for any purpose, I mean, that's still, that still can be painful. And how I mean, tight if, is it? And anything like that, anything can go wrong. If somebody did that to you on the subway, you would consider that to be like they attacked you <laughs> if they went pop up and then they you know all of a sudden like your limbs can't move like yeah and then the amount of money that was mentioned that you know the fact that there's so many people who are profiting off of these things i just think you know we definitely see like it it's creating a market for it it's creating like a hunger for it because people are money hungry and they're greedy so then it becomes like ways to ramp up situations where you'll need to use this. Like, are they going to be trying to use it in the city on like homeless people or you're trying to, you know, we talked about the lady trying to record the police last week. Would they have lassoed her and then suddenly it's not so bad? Like it's, I don't know. It's, I'm glad that it's being exposed, you know, this, because it does sound somewhat somewhat like corruption to me. Like if you're working in city government and then you're also essentially getting rich off of um, this being promoted. Yeah, it definitely sounds like corruption in the making. And the reality is just be now this is just giving police officers an opportunity to 
really capture people and then harm them again. You know, I don't think for one second that this is going to prevent them from doing the dumb shit that they always do without reason. It's just another tool to help them get that done. Um, yeah, it's fucking scary, man. It is. And it's like, this is just one example. It's like, what are the other things that you know, they are planning on introducing or they're going to hype up and some people are going to eat it up. Like, yeah, yeah, let's get more of this thing. Like, this is just, you know, one that I'm aware of so far. Absolutely. You know, when you put cops to to lead cities, this is the type of shit that comes out. Right. Uh, All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and hop into our first music break for the day. Uh, This track is by Alicia Keys and it is called City of Gods Part 2. We'll be right back. Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And next up, Jasmine will bring us our national news segment. Um, Okay, so this is a story of what took place happened exactly one week ago from the day that we're recording. I'm going to be talking about the mass murder of Black people in Buffalo, New York that happened on May the 14th. This article is from the Associated Press, and the title is Buffalo Supermarket Shooting, What Do We Know So Far? I'm not going to read the entire thing, but um, just so we have a clear understanding of what exactly um, went down, I'll read most of it. On Saturday afternoon, May 14th, a white gunman in military gear attacked shoppers and workers at a supermarket in Buffalo, New York, killing 10 Black people. Another black person and two white people were wounded. Officials are investigating the shooting as a hate crime. 
A white 18-year-old wearing body armor and live streaming with a helmet camera opened fire at around 2.30 p.m. Saturday outside Topps Friendly Market. It's a supermarket in a predominantly black neighborhood in Buffalo. The gunman broadcast the shooting to a small audience on Twitch, which said it removed the video from its platform in less than two minutes. According to police, the gunman began shooting in the parking lot. Inside, he exchanged fire with a security guard who was killed before stalking through the aisles and shooting shoppers. At one point, he trained his weapon on a white person cowering behind a checkout counter, but says sorry and doesn't shoot as seen in portions of the live stream video circulating online. When police confronted the gunman in the store's vestibule, he put his rifle to his own neck, but surrendered and dropped the gun with coaxing from the officers. The shooter drove from Conklin, New York, which is a small town about 200 miles southeast of Buffalo. So just as an aside, like this means that he drove for several hours away from where he lived to do this. A document circulated widely online seemingly outlines the shooter's racist, anti-immigrant, and anti-Semitic beliefs. Among them was a desire to drive all people not of European descent from the U.S. The document seemed to draw inspiration from the gunman who killed 51 people at two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand in 2019. Authorities said the shooter had researched local demographics and conducted reconnaissance as part of his efforts to target Black people. The document also says the shooter cons considered killing more people after the supermarket, including people on the streets and perhaps another store. Police said the 13 victims, including the wounded, ranged in age from 20 to 86. The 10 dead include Aaron Salter, a retired Buffalo police officer working as a security guard at the store. Salter fired multiple shots at the assailant, striking his body armor at least once, although the bullet did not pierce. Officials called him a hero who saved lives by running toward danger. A local resident said he cared about the community and looked after the store. So that's the end of what I'm going to read as far as a summary of what actually happened. Uh, the rest of what I'm going to read is going to be a combination of information that was in the New York Times about the victims of the shooting on MSN.com and on ABC News Go, because I think it's important that we talk about who these people were before they were taken from us. Um, so speaking of Aaron Salter, one Topps employee, a mother of seven, told ABC News that if it hadn't been for Salter, she and her 20-year-old daughter, who was working at the register, would not have known the gunman was headed in their direction. When she saw Salter pull out his weapon, they knew they had to run and they both made it out alive, she said. Ruth Whitfield, 86, was picking up groceries after visiting her husband at a nursing home as she did every day. She was the mother of retired fire commissioner Garnell Whitfield, who told the Buffalo News she was a mother to the motherless and a blessing to all of us. Whitfield attributed his mother's strength and commitment to family, to her religious faith. Catherine Cat Massey, age 72, was a beautiful soul who was killed while shopping, Sister Barbara Massey said. 
She was a civil rights activist who worked tirelessly to improve Buffalo's black community, the Buffalo News reported. The Buffalo News said Massey wrote for local publications, the Buffalo Challenger and Buffalo Criterion, and that she often wrote letters to the Buffalo News. She was unapologetic about making sure our community was not ignored, Massey's friend, former Erie County legislator Betty Jean Grant, told the Buffalo News. We lost a powerful, powerful voice. Hayward Patterson, age 67, was a deacon at a nearby church. He'd gone by the church's soup kitchen before heading to the supermarket, where he offered an informal taxi service and would drive people home with their bags. Mr. Patterson would travel to the supermarket daily, giving people rides for less money than they would have had to spend on a taxi or a ride-sharing service, his grandniece Taniqua Clark said. That was how he earned money to support three children, his nephew said. He was helping someone load groceries into the trunk of a car when he was killed, she said. He didn't even have a chance to run, Ms. Clark said. He didn't have a chance at all. Roberta A. Drury, age 32, um, grew up in Cicero, New York, and moved to Buffalo 10 years ago. She helped care for her brother, who is recovering from cancer. Margus D. Morrison, age 52, was a great father and wonderful person who was always willing to help his family. His stepdaughter, Cassandra Demps, said in a text message to ABC News, Morrison was at Tops that afternoon to buy snacks for a weekly movie night with his family. Andre McNeil, age, 50, age 53, um, had gone to the Tops grocery store for a birthday cake, chips, and soda for his three-year-old son, who was having a party at a relative's house later that day. The boy was so close to his father that he would just follow him around like his shadow, his mother and Mr. McNeil's fiance, Tracy McHulowitz said. Geraldine Talley, age 62, was one of nine siblings and was an amazing sister, mother, aunt. She, was, she just was truly an amazing woman, and I'm going to miss her dearly. Talley's death has left her family destroyed, added her sister. I'm hoping we can all move on. Celestine Cheney was a mother and grandmother of six, the Buffalo News reported. She was a breast cancer survivor and she survived aneurysms in her brain. And then she goes to tops and gets shot. Her sister, Joanne Daniels, told the Buffalo News. Cheney's son, Wayne Jones, told the newspaper, if people's moms are still around, just don't be too caught up on social media and the world to pick up the phone and talk to your mom or your dad. Pearl Young, age 77, was an Alabama native and she spent the final years of her life teaching children as a substitute teacher in the Buffalo School District and was heavily involved in her church community. Her sister, Mary Craig, told ABC News. For more than 20 years, Pearl Young ran a food pantry in the Central Park neighborhood to feed people every Saturday, according to reporter Madison Carr. Her family said in a statement that she was a worshiper and loved God. The injured included Zaire Goodman, age 20, Jennifer Warrington, 50, and Christopher Braden, 55. 
Um, so that's the end of the summary of what happened in Buffalo on the 14th. As you can probably hear, like I'm emotional because uh, this happened very close to where I grew up, where I went to school. This took place on the east side of Buffalo, and I'm very familiar with what that means and what it meant for this killer to target that area. So definitely um, rest in peace to all of the victims and um, sending strength to their loved ones. Yeah, it's um, it's really a horrible situation. And unfortunately, it's something that's becoming more and more common, um, not just the mass shooting situation, but the um, the white supremacy and uh, terrorism that accompanies it. And, uh, you know, I, I know, uh, governor Hochul is trying to make a big statement about it with guns and racism, but I fortunately don't know if there's enough political will in this country to do much else about it. Um, but yeah, my heart goes out to, to the community in Buffalo. Thank you, Jasmine, so much for giving us that piece. I was just as emotional as she was reading it. And um, I'm emotional now. You know, every week we do this show with the intention of bringing a voice to the voiceless and a reason for people to be concerned and trying to come up with some level of understanding for ourselves and one another about these stories that don't make any sense at all. And... A lot of times it's very difficult for us to do that. But it's even more difficult today to know that it's not safe anywhere. And people will carry out these horrific tasks in the name of something that doesn't even exist. No reason whatsoever. Now this guy is not original. He's a, I heard somebody say this week, he's a copycat killer. He was trying to be this way. And that's not the story that I want us to remember. I want us to remember the story of all of these people that you just read, who spent their lives serving their families and their communities, who are now hurt and scared to be in their own community, to do something so simple as going to get groceries. It comes a time when it's really nothing left to be said except for our prayers go out to you all and please be safe hug your loved ones as much as you can and just remember that we have to continue to love each other even in the midst of all of this hate yeah and like you you had asked me if I knew anyone personally um, and that's always when these things happen it's natural to ask, like, did you know anyone who was affected? And even though I'll say no, the answer is really yes and no, because maybe I didn't know these specific individuals, but, you know, when I read about these people, I've, you know, I've known many Pearl Youngs in my life. Yeah. You know, I've, you know, been supported by help through a difficult time, been in community with 
like Celestine's mm-hmm. and Andre's and you know so in a way yeah I do know exactly the type of people who are being targeted I hate the language of giving their life or sacrificing their life that some politicians, I believe even Biden made some statement like that. It's been said about George Floyd or whatever. These people didn't sacrifice anything. These are people whose lives were stolen from us before their time. Whether they were 20 or 86, they were not meant to leave this earth this way. Like you said about this being a copycat situation, it's a cop-out to overemphasize recent phenomenon like, oh, it was the internet. Oh, it was this or that specific television show. That's the real culprit. You know, one of the first memories I have of watching the news and understanding that something really bad had happened was the Oklahoma City bombing in which that man, you know, he he blew up kids in a daycare in that federal mm-hmm. building and he had the exact same mindset, reasoning, manifesto, whatever you want to call it, as this 18-year-old. And if you want to go talking about copycat, in this country that we know as the U.S., people who have those beliefs have been attacking you know, putting into segregated communities, stripping of resources like indigenous people, black people, Asian people, Jewish people, like it has been happening for hundreds of years. This isn't new. And I really wish, you know, we we can't behave like it's new every time it happens. It hurts every time it happens, but this is a very much an American phenomenon that we can't face unless we really tell the truth about this country. Um, And that being said, uh, I will definitely make sure to share as much as, you know, I'm able resources where you can help out the east side of Buffalo, which has been neglected by the powers that be for a very long time. There's a very long history of segregation, of disinvestment. You know, there's a reason why it's such a tragedy, not only that these people died, but now many people who relied on that store because they are there are not many options now don't have a reliable place to go to eat. You know, and that's the part of this ideology that some don't like to talk about. It's not just about these spectacular acts of violence. It's also about the violence of not having access to proper food or a decent education or the types of health care that you should have, or adequate housing. That is also white supremacist violence that kills people every day. So just one resource I'd like to mention, because I know personally the people who founded it um, on Instagram, if you go to unapologetic coffee US, that's U-N-A-P-O-L-O-G. E-T-I-C-C-O-F-F-E-E-U-S is their Instagram account. Their website is www.unapologeticcoffee.us. They are sharing ways that you can help the local community, and they are also um, taking some donations and helping to coordinate with that. So that's one place to start um, if you're interested in helping people immediately now.
Yeah, so that's my time for the national news segment. It's just as much as it's not a surprise because we know the country we're living in, it's still nonetheless very, very painful. Absolutely. Um, So some people might not know this, um, but the soul singer Aretha Franklin has a Buffalo connection. Um, She lived in the city of Buffalo for several years with her family. Her mother was a nurse at Buffalo General Hospital, and her father uh, was a pastor at Friendship Baptist Church. Uh, This song is Bridge Over Troubled Waters by Aretha Franklin. We'll be right back. Street. 
follow our social media accounts we have an instagram account and we also have a facebook account our facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free bk no spaces no punctuation our instagram account is at objection to the rule again no spaces no punctuation marks Welcome back to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. For our world news story, we will be hopping over to Asia. I don't know if you've been watching the news, but uh, the COVID pandemic in Asia has a whole uh, interesting life. And this uh, article here is from the LA Times. It's called The Catastrophic Success of China's Zero COVID Policy. The author is Jeremy L. Wallace. For two years, it seemed as though China's ruthless COVID-19 policy had paid off. After stumbling in its initial efforts to stem the pandemic, China's rulers fixed a simple numeric target, zero COVID cases, and made sure everyone knew they had to reach it. The results looked severe to the Western eyes, but they stopped the virus spread. They also gave China a propaganda victory emboldening their claims that authoritarian governments could solve social problems better than liberal democracies, which in worrying too much about people's civil rights ended up killing them instead. Now the costs of China's rigidity are becoming apparent. New variants are much harder to control. More than half of China's largest cities have, been, have seen lockdowns. Weeks after its lockdown began, some in Shanghai remained trapped in their apartments indefinitely, with many growing increasingly angry and hungry. A slew of figures shown in cratering economy shows its cratering economy in April. China's refusal to change course demonstrates the weakness, not the strengths, of China's system. Systems. Once its leaders have settled on a number like zero, it's very hard for them to change. Many Western observers rely on a simplistic model of how China works. They imagine the Chinese government as a monolith where leaders issue edicts that are flawlessly carried out by local agents. The reality is much messier. The Chinese state is a bewildering patchwork of bureaucratic fiefdoms, each run by petty tyrants trying to retain the favor of a party leadership while pursuing their own self-interest. China's leaders have managed their fractitious underlines by giving them clear numeric targets. Central leaders set GDP growth targets for provincial officials, then, who then do the same for city leaders in their region, and so on with countries down the line. Promotions follow from strong performance on its, these metrics, demotions from failure. For decades, this limited qualified vision worked to produce strong GDP performance. But over time, problems accumulated. The predictable result, as my research demonstrates, was that lower officials juked the stats. Some simply faked the numbers and others used policies, such as boosting construction that increased 
short-run GDP at the cost of mounting debts to fund vacant airports, little-use highways, and empty buildings on the edge of shrinking cities. Such efforts to hit their targets happened because these officials had more reason to care about their superiors than the people their policies affected. Fifteen years ago, China's then-premier, Wen Jiedo, laid out his concerns about what this system produced, calling China's economy unstable, unbalanced, uncoordinated, and unsustainable. But even with all the political changes that Xi Jinping has wrought, moving away from GDP targeting has proved elusive. Now, we're seeing the same dynamic unfold with the zero COVID policy. The policy's key strength was its clear numeric target, which China's leaders used to measure the subordinates' performance. But this success has proved increasingly catastrophic. It has led officials to produce questionable numbers. The official death rate is remarkably low. To separate parents from their children, to withhold medical care from those with other ailments, and to confine citizens with a food system near the breaking point to try to achieve an increasingly impossible goal. China's regime is trapped by its previous success. It has centered much of its propaganda on the superiority of zero COVID and the Chinese system of rule. Altering the policy might be taken as an implicit admission that the Chinese model is not so successful after all. Hence the current situation where China's local and national leaders probably realize <clears throat> that continuing the zero COVID policy is a mistake, but no one feels secure enough to take the risk of fixing it. One key lesson is that complex authoritarian systems such as China are less nimble than they seem at first sight. Numeric targets allow the central leadership to influence their underlings, but at the expense of giving them tunnel vision and the incentive to fudge the figures when they can. And sometimes, when the targets do succeed for a while, they become traps, tempting the regime to identify too closely with the measure that then leads, to it, leads it to adopt increasingly irrational policies, even when reality demands change. It's hard for China's leaders to relax zero COVID policy, even if they can see its destructive consequences. Okay, this article is from CNN.com. The title is North Korea Sends Cargo Planes to China as Country Fights Pandemic. The author is Yoon Jung Xiao and Jesse Jung. Three North Korean cargo planes flew to China and back on Monday as the country battles a fast-paced spreading outbreak of COVID-19, according to South Korean government officials with knowledge of the matter. The planes traveled to Taoshen International Airport in Shenyang in China's northeast Liaoning province, the official said. It's unknown what the planes are carrying, but the rare trip came after China pledged to help North Korea with its COVID outbreak, which experts have warned could cause a major humanitarian crisis in an isolated and impoverished nation. North Korea officially confirmed its first ever COVID cases last week. It had not previously acknowledged any cases and has kept its borders tightly shut since January 2020. Since May 12th, North Korea has reported nearly 2 million fever cases, with state media calling it a major national emergency and authorities scrambling to respond. All cities have been placed under lockdown, and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has mobilized the military to help secure the supply of medicine in the capital city of Pyongyang. After the first cases were announced, China said it was ready to provide full support to North Korea's comrades, neighbors, and friends. The two countries have a fine tradition of mutual assistance, said a spokesperson from the China's foreign ministry. 
Throughout the pandemic, China has sent millions of vaccine doses around the world, as well as striking agreements last year with the international vaccine sharing program, COVAX, to provide more than a half a billion shots. North Korea has not yet established a COVID-19 vaccination program, leaving its population vulnerable, according to the World Health Organization. The country's dilapidated health care system also lacks the medicine and supplies necessary for combating the COVID-19 outbreak. The situation has sparked alarm along, among international bodies and the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights warning on Tuesday that the outbreak and the restrictions in place could have a devastating impact on the human rights situation in the country. Human Rights Watch has also expressed concern, urging the UN and governments around the world to make every possible effort to persuade North Korea to allow outside humanitarian assistance. The South Korean government says it has offered assistance to North Korea, including medicine, vaccines, and other medical supplies, but has yet to receive a response. So that's the end of the second article. Um, One of the reasons that I wanted to pull them together, obviously they are related, is this whole discussion of the authoritarian way of handling the crisis as opposed to the so-called democratic way of handling it that was brought up in the first article. But also, both of these countries are were already in humanitarian crises for a very long time before COVID-19 was ever a thing. And now, in this space where so much of the world has moved through this crisis, not to say it's over, not to say we fixed it, it's better even, right, because it's on the rise at this point, but the reality that they're somewhat stuck in time Um, and trying to come up with things because they didn't allow the influence or any of the other stuff that we all have been going through is very scary. And these are not small populations. These are very large populations of people. The zero COVID target is, I think, impossible, irrational, and crazy. And as we watch it unfold, it's just really concerning, considering the fact that the rest of the world has been battling this thing differently. Um, yeah, I mean, it's always difficult to fully know, like, the complete picture of what's going on within a country that, um, like, has state media and things like that. I mean, but it's, for me, like, one of the red flags that I've seen in the U.S. media is, like, comparing the U.S.'s like non-response or sort of abdication of responsibility to stop spread at all seemingly from the beginning and then comparing it to Asia like countries in Asia like you know look at how wild it is that they're doing what they're doing I feel like there's sometimes like I'm not saying that the way China is doing things or the way that North Korea is doing things is necessarily a hundred percent correct, but I'm also like, are you trying to use, not you, but like the writers, are they trying to use whatever is wrong with their response to sort of make it seem like the U S one is better or like good because it's actually been horrible. Like, I don't know like what the official death numbers are, but when they say that the U.S. is number one globally for COVID deaths, I believe it 100%. So I'm just kind of at a loss because I can't, part of me kind of figured that the pandemic would last longer than some thought it would at the beginning, but I 
sometimes I'm like, where did the time go? Because we're now on year three. And it, it's like we're in a time loop, whether it's here, there. Uh, I don't know. I don't have too much like constructive to say. But I, it's just it's difficult to know that it, it never had to get to this point, And yet here we are. Yeah, I don't think I particularly have, you know, uh, anything constructive. I just think it's a very interesting concept um, to consider, you know, the ways of doing things and how different they are. Of course, we probably will never know the truth on either side. Um, to be honest, can we really trust the people who make this <clears throat> information available us, to us? That's a good point because everyone has, you know, they want to make it seem like the way their own place right. is handling it is the way. And in order to do that, you can take shots at other places like, oh, well, look at what they're doing. It's exactly. like, well, also, what's the downside to that? Right. So. Yeah. I just thought that it was an interesting thing to consider. Um, you know, there's always more solutions to problems that we may not even think about. And not to say one way is better than the other, but we are definitely still in this thing. And, um, you know, just it's interesting to watch and see how it's being managed, whether it's here or far and what will happen. We don't know what will happen at the end of the summer going into next winter. Obviously, this thing is not over uh, with cases rising every day, specifically in places. And now monkeypox is coming. Girl, I was about to do one on monkeypox, but I just could not bring myself <laughs> that'll be for next week do you remember did you ever see that movie outbreak i did i couldn't watch it all the way through i tried to watch it during when the pandemic first started like everybody was doing i just had to stop well i did watch it and i remember i was like oh my god and it's like you think everyone said there was outbreak and a lot of people were watching contagion yeah and contagion i remember seeing in the theater and people i thought that seemed like oh wow that seems like a disaster but it was like people didn't anticipate, at least in Contagion, like all the people in charge are doing what they're supposed to do. Right. And they're not anticipating like people in charge being like, no, let's spread it more or let's just get rid of these people. Outbreak, it's like you have you have this thing that happens in like a particular part of Africa. The powers that be do not send them assistance. There's then like this monkey that escapes in the U.S. An outbreak happens. You remember those monkeys that got escaped on the road from the lab in Pennsylvania that were just in the woods? That was like three months ago. Oh, my. I need to do some digging, man. (laughs) Yeah, I'll send you the link. And I was like, oh, my Lord, this is exactly like Outbreak. And that zombie movie, it's like the, the monkeys are... They're ten thousand a dollar each monkeys that are just like out somewhere, and now it's like oh Bellevue, Massachusetts, Spain, <laughs> Paris. Like oh my god, yeah man, um, it ain't safe nowhere, nowhere, no more for so many reasons. But um, you know, I said all that to say like, you know, we really don't know what's happening um with this virus and 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 we can't really trust all of the news obviously because we are being fed um what what the powers that be want us to know um but i just thought it was an interesting point of contention to consider what would be you know the concept of a zero covid policy and you know how establishing these systems did they work 
or did they not? I don't quite know. Um, but yeah, I just thought that was an interesting segment for us to consider. Yeah. So whether you're here, there, anywhere in the world, wear a mask, distance, take care of yourself, yourself, you know, look out for your loved ones because you, unfortunately you cannot always trust the people that, you know, that's their job to actually be doing it. So we're all we got. That's right. And uh, make sure you keep checking in with OTR because we going to give it to you as best as we can. <laughs> yeah. All right, y'all. Well, that concludes today's episode of Objection to the Rule. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch all our older episodes on Radio Free Brooklyn app, on Radio Free Brooklyn um, website, or on Spotify. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. Our final track of today is a new one. Well, I'm not sure if it's new, but I just got hip to this band. The track is called Why Try, and it's by Tank and the Bangers. We will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Flowers, just because it's Monday. Raindrops falling only one way. to present four amazing bands at an outstanding local venue for an evening of rock and music. Join us on Friday, May 20th at 7.30 for a night with 7th Grade Girl Fight, Dirt Bikes, Barrette, and Castle Black, and none other than Ridgewood's own Bar Frida, 801 Seneca Avenue. Tickets are $10 and can be purchased at the venue.